Hello, and welcome to Found TechCrunch's podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from the folks that are building them. I'm your host, Becca Skutak, and I'm joined by the fabulous... Dominic Midori Davis. How are you doing, Becca? Oh, I'm doing well. Dom, can you remind me, how many weekends in a row will tomorrow be that it's raining on Saturday? I don't know. I feel like the world is against us. I think it's seven or eight. It's seven. Oh my gosh. Which is actually really interesting because this kind of goes into the conversation we're having today. When like a few weeks ago, when New York got hit with that tropical storm and it was so much rain that the city just started flooding. Oh my God. And it all floods right to my basement. Sometimes I feel like I live in the lowest point of the city, or at least that makes me feel a little bit better about the building structure because I hope it's not just how bad this building is. But yes, the flooding has been crazy here. Was it bad up by you? No, I'm on a hill. So all of the water just rolls down to the people at the bottom of the hill, which, I mean, I guess, (laughs) I don't know what happens to them. I guess the basements flood. Yeah. We can't keep dealing with this rain. But the more rain is definitely relevant. We're talking with Seven Analytics today, which is a startup that does many things. But one of the things that they've done first is they've created a unique solution to sort of help builders and construction companies figure out what flooding might look like, where they are building a building so they can design it in a way where they don't have to deal with those issues, which for me just sounds crazy because I sometimes feel like my building was designed to flood. (laughs) I know. I mean, and this is exactly the type of technology I think that we're going to start seeing more of. I hope so. We kind of go into it in the conversation in terms of adaption. Is it adaption or adaptation? I feel like it's both. Both works. (laughs) Both works versus mitigation because we've kind of passed the point of preventing a lot of climate disasters. We have to start preparing and adapting toward this new world that we're in. No, definitely. And this company seems to fully get that, which is nice. Because I've talked to a few other companies in the climate space who are also, not companies, VC funds who invest in climate startups who are also more focused on the adaptation part of it because that is the more immediate need. So it's definitely good to hear of another company building in that. And of course, for me, such a personal area. Um, So I was going to say there's also investors who don't believe in climate. Oh, yes. (laughs) So it's really, really good to see that this innovation is moving forward. There are people who are very, very serious about this issue. Yeah. Jonas Torland, the co-founder of Seven Analytics, is who we're chatting with today, which Seven Analytics is that Norwegian company that built a data platform that powers tools and products for sustainable risk management. So he'll tell us a little bit about how they're helping prevent flooding and beyond. Let's go to the conversation. Hi, Jonas. How's it going? It's good. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for coming on. We're super excited to learn more about Seven Analytics. So maybe we start there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the company? Yeah, sure. So Seven Analytics is really a climate-focused startup out of Bergen, Norway. And the city is actually called the rain capital of Norway. So it fits quite good. And uh, our main goal is is basically to understand the inner dynamic of nature and more specifically uh, around natural hazards and, and how this will unfold now and, and into the future. So trying to build super smart tools for companies so they can build resilience. And I know you guys have already started working on or have mainly built out one of these potential solutions. Maybe if you want to tell us a little bit about what that looks like. 
Yeah, I can do that. It's pretty exciting, the stuff we're doing in the US right now. And it's basically, we see all these initiatives when it comes to flooding and these models. And many of them are focused on the insurance industry. Mm. But I really, with all the stuff happening, uh, insurance being pulled, you have to protect the businesses. Uh, you have to protect their operations. So we have launched together with Storm Geo, which is a weather inside company. We have launched a higher resolution flood model. Basically tells them up to seven days ahead what will happen at their sites. And it's really high precision. So they can tell if there's going to be half a meter around the building, when it will reside, and they can do measures. And I think that's really important. And I'm curious, it's so interesting. You talk about natural hazards and then focusing on flooding, or at least focusing on flooding at the moment. I know my basement, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows this, floods every single time it rains. It really shouldn't be my problem because I am a renter, but somehow it still is. So I'm curious how you got interested or decided to focus on this space specifically, because I know for me, I'd be like, oh, well, I have a horror war story about it, but I'm sure you probably came to it for a different reason. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a pretty long way back because me, me and uh, my three founders, we we worked together in a, in a high tech oil company like eight years ago. It was really innovative. We tried to to kind of shift the business with some super fancy electromagnetic poles to see where the oil was. So mm. quite high tech. And already then we were discussing how can we really use these kind of in-depth knowledge on, on how the fluid are moving in the subsurface, because that's much more complex than what we're doing on the surface. So it started already then. Then we spread out. Helge went to the architect industry and, and um, Vano, our CDO, he, he was working building uh, software elsewhere and me and Olf were stuck in the in the oil business and then we we looked at what they were using in the construction industry we felt that the models were not too accurate we wanted to do it deeper and then uh, we just started digging and now i think we have a pretty different approach very bottom up we have used so much time on things that people that doesn't seem to care about but then when you start to test these models you see that it's much more precise and, and really that's what we need. We need to know what is happening. We need to know that it's your basement that will be hit and not the neighbors. And it is really local. So I think it's super important. Now, would you say that your technology more focuses on how to adapt to climate change or mitigate what's already happening? Well, it's, this is actually a, a quite passionate subject because uh, if you are in the, that adaptation space, which we are, we define ourselves as an adaptation tech startup. One of the problems and, and why I don't think there's enough initiatives is that many VCs have been very focused on mitigation, which is super important, obviously, but, but you have to consider the adaptation part as well. So it's actually been pretty hard for adaptation tech the last three or four years to get funding and to kind of quantify that their value proposition, especially defining the market, because the market is damaged and death, and that, that's not something which is easily explained. And um, we had a big, um, I think it's the first kind of big climate adaptation event in Norway. We call it now because it's happening now and not in 2150 or we're getting hit now. And um, I tried to recruit a lot of startups from Northern Europe. And I was so fascinated about a kind of lack of startups in this space. I'm really happy to see now that things have changed. The last year has been um, 
very different. You see all these big uh, VCs coming out. We now have adaptation mandate as well as mitigation. So I think that's really good. But this is adaptation. We need to adapt to the climate we have now and it will be worse going forward. So, um, yeah, I think we should focus on both mitigation and adaptation. Really important. Do you think like a lot of people were afraid to kind of look at adapting towards what's happening and like they still think there's time to mitigate? That's definitely a point. Uh, I know here in Norway, there has been kind of uh, some skepticism to focusing a lot of adaptation is like giving up on mitigation, right? And I think that's part of the problem. You, you, you can do both. It's not like you say adaptation is important and then you won't mitigate. But uh, I think the last numbers I've seen, I think it was the World Bank last year, it was 90% towards mitigation and 10% towards adaptation. Uh, you, we're not going to shrink the mitigation. We're just going to be even harder on, on adaptation. I think that, that's where we want to go. No, that is really interesting because I talked to a emerging manager earlier this year who announced a fund focused on wildfire tech startups, fully focused on adaption as opposed to mitigation, just because he was like, of course, obviously everyone wants to make this less of an issue, but that doesn't change the fact that people's homes burn down every year. And there are things we could do to help prevent that, which of course is a good thing in the grand scheme of things. But I'm curious, because you just mentioned that even if you're not focused on mitigation, a lot of this stuff that is focused on adaption will help with mitigation as well. How do you guys think your company fits into that? Do you think that'll ever become part of it or sort of like, how do you think you'll be able to sort of work on both sides? No, we actually, we have some pretty big uh, investors in Norway, which are kind of funded by the government and they're solely focused on on mitigation that they cannot invest in 7Analytics. So uh, last year, we had a lot of these discussions on on how are we really within the mitigation. It's indirectly, but again, just look at the damage from the floods in New York recently. Of course, if you start measuring the kind of the the CO2 impact on the rebuild, you, you know, construction is 40% 40% industry and how much that contributes. So obviously, if you can minimize the amount of damage, that will be a, a big part of the puzzle as well. You cannot kind of do a fixed line between mitigation and adaptation. It's more like a hand in hand and you can reduce by doing a lot of different things. I think that's our take on, on where we are in, in kind of the middle of things. And who are you selling to at the moment? I know something like this, of course, there's a whole range of potential customers and sort of use cases as well. But where have you guys started on the selling side where you seen demand? So we have a few different products. I think we we spent the first year just building the framework of 7Analytics, which is uh, very focused around kind of a, a data mining platform where we are able to produce together to reprocess data really fast because that's what we think is super important. It is as simple. If if there's a new sidewalk, if there's a new garage, then the water went left yesterday, it goes right today, and then your analysis will be totally wrong. So this is important for everything we do. So when we have built that, we, we started with our first product, which is the flood cube planning. It's more like a stormwater planning tool. So we, we launched that in the construction industry in Norway. So that the biggest municipalities, the biggest developers, architects are using it. And then uh, our next path was towards insurance. So we partnered with one of the biggest insurers in Norway. 
and created more like an API solution to give them a much better risk understanding of flooding. So that was towards insurance. And then the last part is what we have discussed now in, in the US with a real-time solution. And that's basically for everyone. I think we have we've signed our first customer, which is Total Energies, looking after their their headquarter in Houston and, and some solar plants. And um, but we're talking to hospitals, big grocery shops. We're talking to uh, refineries. So it's basically everyone that has operations on the ground. It, it then it's super relevant. And I'm always curious. This falls into the category of technology that every when I hear about it, I'm like surprised people weren't already trying to do something like this. Like if you're building a building, wouldn't you care about if it's going to flood? Like say five, ten years ago. So I'm definitely curious, sort of how different this is or sort of is this a better solution where people really just like throwing things at the wall hoping things didn't flood i mean of course you have a whole range of good versus bad construction companies but how were people trying to tackle this before if at all or is it just a more prevalent issue now well i I think there's different answer here uh, as to what kind of product we're talking about Uh, i think for the the stuff we've made for the construction industry uh, i think it's been more about automatic processes making it quicker making it more kind of aligned with uh, regulations etc so basically for example many of the analysis they've done before they have to use some um, visualization tools they have to extract some they have to go into excel make some calculations and we built all that analysis into our program so time saving and more accurate because you can uh, integrate different people and work together but when we talk about the more like the real-time stuff which is machine learning models is quite heavy then i think it's all about how much data can you really process i think if you if you go back just two or three years i think just running our solution for an hour, you will be bankrupt from using Amazon or any other kind of service. Otherwise, you would have uh, 10 data storage rooms or whatever. So it's all about power. It's so immense to run these models because you want to have really high resolution data and you have to run it all the time because you have to kind of take into account historic weather. Our model runs all the time. So basically what fall in the last hour it is incorporated in the model and it's training on that. So it's super advanced. And uh, I think that's part of the reason why it's not been done before. We haven't met. I know there's a lot of good initiatives. There's many kind of flooding related startups, but it's such a big task. So you you have a flood base, for example, cloud to street. They are super advanced, but they work kind of a bit of a different stage than we do. It's more insurance focused. It's kind of monitoring these events as they unfold. It's about rebuild. I think it's a really interesting story, but I think people doesn't understand that flooding is such a big picture. <laughs> it's so many different products that can help different people at different parts of this. So I think we're in the beginning we're at prediction level we want to do as much as possible before anything happens and uh, i think that's fairly new and unique now you're in norway and the u.s right now are there any other markets you want to expand to yeah definitely i think it's a bit of a hard exercise because we have had nice uh, meetings in germany and uk uh, other countries in the nordics as well but uh, i think we will probably focus a lot on the u.s and it's basically because it it's so much more mature within this field. And I think it's two reasons to that. The one reason is there's been so much bad weather for a long time. So the businesses, is, it's very different to European businesses. It's like you have a an operation manager or a resilience manager taking care of these type of data. 
if it's uh, kind of the hurricane forecast or is wildfire data, etc. The system is already rigged. There is a place for our solution going to Europe. It's a bit different. It's uh, kind of uh, which country had the recent big flood and they are kind of building readiness uh, like Germany two years ago. Everything has changed now. It's much more mature, but it takes time. You know, um, I was talking to someone a while ago about how like regions or like countries like Pakistan, for example, she was talking to me about how some countries don't have accurate maps to kind of prepare for climate disasters like this. And so I was just thinking and like this might not even apply to maybe it does apply to your company. Like, how do you get climate technology like this to countries where they're being so impacted, but the data might not be accurate, but they still need a lot of help? I think it's getting better because we get so much kind of global satellite data at a certain level. The data we usually plug into our model is laser data. So it's very high resolution and very heavy. I think most of the Western markets, they have pretty good coverage. But as you're saying, in in some um, other countries, there will not be the same amount of data. You will have to rely on maybe a coarser grid from satellites. So I think that's a problem. But I think also this is a big focus. So I would expect we haven't done too much in Asia yet. But I have to mention this. We had a really nice exercise. There's a a very cool school in, in Bergen. They invite all these different schools to to look at startups and and do these case studies. And we gave them a a big task. We said, how are we going to scale sound analytics to Asia? Because it's basically in Asia, they have the biggest problem. And they they got this exercise. They did it for five hours. It was Chinese schools. It was U.S. schools. And I, I was amazed what they could do in five hours. Really smart people. And some of the statistics they pulled out is like, if you fast forward 2030, Basically, two thirds of all the exposed people from floods are in Asia. So it's kind of it's a huge market and it's a huge need. So I really hope I think Seven Analytics is still still pretty small. We we cannot focus on on all the markets at once. But I really hope when we get there that they have started to collect this type of data because then it's a company like Seven Analytics can build good models and help them. And now we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. Taking a step back for a second, I was on your LinkedIn and noticed you went to school for geology. And so I'm curious kind of how that led you here. And maybe they're more related than I realize. You can totally tell me I know nothing about geology and I would accept that as an answer. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's a good question. Uh, it should be mentioned that we actually have um, landslide models mm. live as well. So it's not only floods we're predicting, it's landslides as well. and. Uh, that's also a pretty big problem, and it's very related to water flow. Usually, we were uh, presenting at this conference in Norway uh, some months ago, and we looked at all these big building sites. There's been so many landslides lately in Norway, and of the, I think of the last 10, I think eight were directly related to changes of water paths. Hmm. That was actually what was causing the, the landslide. So I think if I were pitching my investor deck to you uh, to you two now, I would tell you that the ecosystem we're building at Seven Analytics is, is, is actually to understand all these mechanics better. And the way we do that, when we are building flood models, we're taking a lot of that data into our landslide models because they are so related and that makes us perform better. And back to the geology part, I think being a geologist is in the kind of uh, 
data science, natural science space. I think you're a generalist. First year, you learn about how the planet evolved. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's a really good start point when you're diving into these things. And we have, we've hired many geo people since we started. And I think it's a good, it's a good place to start if you're going to work on landslides or floods. Yeah. That's the, that's the short answer to that. That's so interesting. I think you're the first person I've talked to who's a geologist. So that's definitely a cool thing. But I am curious, since like tracking the path of your career thus far, I know you mentioned toward the top of the call that you started out working in these big oil companies in Norway. Did you ever think you would start your own company? Or even if you thought there were other areas you wanted to work in, did you see yourself becoming a founder? I guess not in the beginning. I think when you when you graduate and you go into your first job, I think you're so laser focused on on performing on those tasks. I remember I was uh, least and and my first year is all about. I was an explorationist, so I, it was all about finding that big oil field. And actually, when I before I started to study, it was kind of a, a really popular job in Norway, like working in the oil and gas industry. It, it's, a, it's a different discussion if it's still important or not, uh, that we could talk about that for hours, kind of the, the whole energy system and, and especially with all the things happening in the world right now. But I think it very much changed from when I started studying geology, wanting to become an explorationist to when I left. The kind of the um, how people talked about the job, how people felt it was important or not. So I think obviously that inspired some people working in the oil and gas business to think about different things, think about where can I apply my, my knowledge. And I think it's really important to emphasize the way the oil and gas industry has been pouring money into R&D development because there's so much knowledge there on how to because it's so big decisions you're going to drill a well it costs a billion and then you you're using so much data to make that decision so data driven decision making i think many industry can learn from what they are doing in the oil and gas industry when it came time to moving like and applying all the knowledge you had and launching your own company finally what is something about being an entrepreneur that maybe you weren't expecting or that caught you off guard no i think the the, the constant drive i think it's really <laughs> it's really tough uh there's always a thousand tasks it's a it's different in the beginning because then you're kind of the founders are have all the tasks and then you hire these great people and they help and it evolves but i think it's this constant hunt for either customers or funding or it's it's always super high speed i guess i i heard a lot of about the, the the founder game but i didn't expect it to be that high speed constantly what is like a moment where not necessarily you failed but like what is like something where where something happened where you learned like a really big lesson from well i think uh, and i we're part of a big startup movement in in norway we're part of the startup lab they have the biggest group of startups in norway so you see uh, a lot of people you see them uh, succeed you see them fail for different reason we've had many mountains to climb but on the tech part i'm more on the on the commercial part so and there's been big 
kind of customer processes going going uh, the wrong way when it should really have gone the right way. But I think the most important thing is that at some point, I think it was last year, uh, I was pretty worn out after the last funding round. And I think that's talking about kind of this work-life balance uh, and this mental healthness for, for founders. I think it's something we need to talk more about. And I'm a bit surprised looking back on our journey that it's it should actually be a KPI from the investors. It's not like you shouldn't you shouldn't put uh, in your scorecard. It shouldn't be like oh, it was positive. He answered the phone at uh, eleven p.m. in in the evening. It should be, it didn't because he actually cares about the, the stability and he will. This person can run for ten years. Maybe it's it's shifting, but I think I've seen there's several people in around our business in the other startups. It's just it's been too much and um, failed because of that. So I'm a bit surprised that it's not more focus on that part of the game. No, and you bring up such a good point by saying that because we've had founders on before who have talked about some of the mental toll that they weren't expecting. I know, I think the first or second episode I recorded when I started last year, we had a founder on who got so stressed from running the company, she gave herself type 2 diabetes. And it's just something that we just like don't talk about as much as we probably should. And I'm curious, since you had the realization, how would you describe your approach to work-life balance now, both for yourself and sort of how does that translate into your employees and setting those expectations? No, I think it's definitely changed. Uh, I think you you have to believe that uh, you need to have breaks. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And I think it's healthy for the business. It's not healthy to experience going too many times down in the basement. When you're building a company, you have to be aware of this. Obviously, it will be high stress when you're building a new business. It will be high stress for the founders. It will be for the employees. And it's so critical. Just looking at the people we have now, every single one, we're like 16, 17 people now. Every single one it's a total crisis if they leave because they're so important. And I know it will be like this for a long time. You rely so much on every one of them. So you have to build a healthy environment and it cannot be stressful all the time. You have to have breaks. I think it's super important to, to do that. Yeah, and that was also going into my next question in terms of how would you describe your leadership style? Well, I think we are, uh, I guess many answer this, but I think we are a pretty flat structure. The Norwegian style is actually like that for good or bad, but uh, we try to be open as possible. We believe in, in as, as I said, kind of data-based and a proper decision-making. It's not like my gut feeling should be kind of weighing heavily when we do important discussions and decisions. If you look at the, the, the four of us, the founders, I think we probably have different leader styles if you go into depth without that being my uh, big knowledge of mine. So that's different. But I think overall, we have a pretty flat structure and we involve as many as possible in the decisions. And that's probably, I think it's, it's good to be that way now. And maybe when we are 50 people or 100 people, maybe we will not be as suitable uh, as uh, kind of the, the old uh, the, the management for this business. So in the Starface, I think it's pretty good. How did you all initially decide like who would be like CEO and like how did you divide up leadership responsibilities? Oh, obviously, when we did our first fundraising, it was Startup Lab, the incubator, the big biggest one in Norway, and an angel investor called Bjarte. He's now our uh, director of the board, chairman. They were the first investors, and we had Innovation Norway coming in, and we had only enough money to hire one and a half 
people. So it was Helge, which is our CEO, and, and Werner, which is our CTO. They were the first hirings. Me and Rolf had to work on the side for the first, I think it was 12 months, and then we, we jumped on. So Helge was was CEO and, and Werner was CTO. He's our tech guy. He's built a lot of software and he's probably the top three most creative persons on the planet. So fits really good. I think that he would have been there anyway. And Helge is very good at, at kind of a driving force, having the overview. It was probably a bit kind of random when we started, not uh, on Werner's role, but uh, maybe the other ones. But but I think we ended on where we should have ended. I think uh, me holding the commercial part, uh, Helge being the CEO and, and Rolf kind of doing operations part. I think that was where we should have been. So pretty happy we ended up that way. Four is a lot of co-founders. I know you mentioned, especially earlier when you said you had like a flat structure. Do you think ever having that many co-founders is like too many cooks in the kitchen? Or do you think you guys each have such individualized strengths that it doesn't end up being too much of an issue? No, I think I think this is just positive. At least for Seven Analytics, it's basically the, the double of of the power of two. <laughs> so I think it's positive. Obviously, four could be a, a problem if if you are kind of on different parts of the lane in terms of what where you want to go. Going in different direction could be hard. But I think we have we worked together eight years ago. We've been friends forever. So I think we're pretty close. We know uh, our strengths and our weaknesses. With that perspective, I think four is good. And being a single founder or being four, it's quite a big difference. Just imagine if you don't have time to do stuff in the middle of the night. It's really nice to be able to call three co-founders and not your employees. I think that's good. And speaking of employees, what has it been like hiring? Because I know this type of product, as you mentioned, like touches a few different areas, like pulls from a few different like technical expertise areas as well. How do you guys find the right members for the team? No, that's it's also a really hard part of building a company. And uh, I think we've been very lucky. Uh, the people we have hired are, are so good. We, we couldn't be more happy with the team. Looking back at our processes, I, I can see the first process was really unstructured, but we didn't have time to do it. Uh, a kind of a big job uh, hiring agencies, etc. We just had to rely on our gut feelings as much as possible and, and uh it was no time to interview uh, 40 people and uh, we couldn't do that. But uh, it has uh, evolved like everything else. So we're, uh, we're more structured now, but I think it's still really hard. And it's, it's the same as all the other processes when we build a company. Like now we're entering a new funding round. It always comes on top of everything else. It's just like your time, uh, your time is empty and then you have to do that. And it's same with hirings as well. We, we still haven't used any agencies for hiring, so it takes a lot of time, but maybe next time we have to change that. And speaking of fundraising, what has fundraising for this company been like? And also, have you noticed kind of a difference in the way European VCs approach your company versus American VCs? So we haven't we have only Norwegian investors as of now. The last round or seed round, we got three Norwegian VCs in or one VC, two CVCs. But we had actually um, some European uh, funds going all the way to the end last time. <laughs> Coming back to uh, a passionate subject, the adaptation part and the mandates of the funds, it, it's changed quite rapidly. I think the last six to 12 months, so much has changed. Our last round, it was really tough to explain our, our value proposition and, and explaining the market, as I mentioned. But now it's 
totally different. We haven't called out to any investors. We're now we haven't really kicked off our data room or anything yet, but we're still in we're already in process with forty plus VCs. Wow. It's also the good the good ones. It's the good European and and American VCs and, and they're contacting us because they have heard about what we have done on the adaptation side and they have many say we have spent a lot of time the last year understanding the adaptation space. How is the market? How will it be in 2027 uh, going forward? So I think a lot of investors have really seen that this is an important space. So I think it will be easier this time. Probably not wise to say. <laughs> it will be a great deal of job uh, as always, but I think we're more understood this time. Uh, I think that's important. Yeah, that's so interesting because like, hmm, I mean, obviously like we're having a bunch of natural disasters people are now understanding, but how big of a role do you think startups can play in tackling the climate mitigation and adaption issue? Because I imagine at some point you're going to need like really big, I don't know, government or something like that. Yeah, but 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 it's it's I think it's crucial. It's just looking at what we're doing in the US. So these huge corporations, these with the 100 billion US in a yearly revenue, the huge companies, they are so happy when we meet them. They say they've all they've been relying on, on static governmental maps up until now. And they haven't seen any kind of operational high precision solution like this. And it's coming from a small Norwegian startup with 15 people. And that's uh, on the ground in the US. So obviously, small organization, fast moving organization can, can move big mountains. And uh, clearly, that's also the, it's the same in the adaptation space. So I think we can do a lot. But then the investors, Everyone who has still not uh, included this in their mandate, just do it now. We uh, we need much more startups in this space. And since you mentioned small company from Norway, small team, maybe if we want a final question, talk about what's next, where you guys see the company headed. Yeah, so we're really excited about the, the next chapter. So now we're moving out of our home field. So the plan is to at least one of us will move to the US when we are finished with this round. So building up our shop there, I think that will be the main focus going forward. And we will also probably have a, a set up a hub in, in Europe as well. I hope, I really hope that uh, we can see more traction in Europe as well, that the, all the businesses can hire these excellent kind of operation manager, resilient people to start using all this data on natural hazards, incorporate that in, in the business culture as well. So, but I think we will have laser focus on, on, on the US. I think that's the most mature market when it comes to adaptation and really spending time on these type of tools. And we will um, spend a lot of time understanding where the insurance industry is going. I think that's super important to understand where you need to build stuff. What is happening in California is scary, kind of uh, with the, the pullbacks of insurance. And also you see the same in Australia, really kind of five times the premiums. So, so you will see that many places. And then it's even more important to have good risk understanding. Well, Jonas, this has been a pleasure. We are unfortunately out of time, but thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great discussion. Mm, I learned a little bit more about geologists in the process. <laughs> And that was our conversation with Jonas. Dom, what did you think? I love hearing about climate technology and how people are working together to fix this crisis that we're in. Oh my God, I know. Especially like 
Wildfire stuff, obviously, I recognize the damages from, and we had those crazy skies in New York earlier this year, but flooding is one of those things that (laughs) I'm, like, annoying everyone listening right now, but, like, really affects me personally, too. (laughs) So it's, like, very easy for me to wrap my head around how hard it is and how much of a pain it is. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm from Florida, and all of the flood insurance companies are, I think we only have, like, three or something left. Like, everyone is leaving, which is also very similar to, I guess, what's happening in California with wildfires. And so, I mean, we are getting hit. I cannot stress this enough. I know. And so it's good to see this a company like this that's saying, you know what, let's, since we're already in this situation, let's try to make it better rather than focus a lot of the attention on let's try to prevent floods. It's like we've passed that point. We're having floods now. No, I think that piece of it is so interesting. And I was surprised, I guess, to hear about what he said about how they kind of ran into issues the first time they went out to raise funding because a lot of investors were more focused on mitigation efforts as opposed to adaptation, which of course, I mean, like, I'm not saying less money should go to mitigation. I'm just saying the pool of money should be bigger and more money should go to adaptation. Because I've talked to one VC fund, which I mentioned in the conversation, Convective Capital, which is fully focused on adaptation startups and adaption startups for wildfires, as opposed to mitigation, just because his argument was it's a lot easier to fix the problem in the future when you have a handle on the problem today. Yeah, I was also really shocked to hear that because just as as a regular person impacted by the daily occurrence of climate change, it makes sense that we would also want to help people adapt and like have technology to help us live with what's happening. So I was also really shocked that investors weren't for it. And that's why I was like, are they just scared to admit that things are bad? Mm. But then I'm also now starting to think, and it might not even be that widespread because there are climate funds that target this. I wonder... Just to say, so I guess like a few weeks ago, me and Amanda and Kyle and the team here at TechCrunch, we wrote a story about a manifesto that was published by a certain big name VC. And when he was listing all of the things that he deemed to be an enemy of his state, he was talking about climate change and, you know, the sustainable development goals by the United Nations and ESG investing. And so I'm wondering, what is the sentiment in Silicon Valley, like how many other people actually believe that? And if that has an impact at all in terms of how much funding goes into climate, it might not have anything, but that was something that I started thinking about because I'm like, this guy's out here working on climate adaption or adaptation. And then there are people who are saying climate change is an enemy of the state. Like, I wonder what impact that has on the funding landscape. It might not have anything, but it was just, No, yeah. it's such a good point. And I feel like that's why it's almost a good thing for society that this type of company wasn't started in the U.S. Because definitely being started, especially in the Nordics, like Europe in general, but the Nordics particularly, they just get the importance of this stuff a lot more. Like there are ice sheets in those countries that are melting. Like they feel a lot of these impacts of climate change earlier than many of us did here. But it is crazy for Silicon Valley investors to be like, oh yeah, my second home burned down in a wildfire two years ago. But like, I don't know if there's a problem. Like, is that really worth investing in? It's just like, where's the disconnect? I mean, specifically in that manifesto was like, ESG is like an enemy of technology. And when I think of that, And then I see a company like this. I'm like, how is that possible? Like, this is obviously something that is trying to make our lives better and is worth investing in. I don't know, but you're right. The Europeans always get it. They just get it. They just get it. Not on everything. Not on everything. But (laughs) climate, they seem to get it. Yeah, it's just crazy to think about, especially because startups seem to be, in many ways, where we're going to see this progress. So Jonas talked about that because you very smartly asked him, but... 
startups should play a big role in this because they can not only create solutions for companies to adopt, they can also go into these big corporations and sort of essentially figure it out for them. Oh, a huge company with thousands of employees has all these carbon emissions. They would have to put so much resources, hire a team to do it themselves, or they can hire someone, a startup, where this is the only thing they know how to do. They're really good at it. I don't know. I feel like startups are going to really drive a lot of this innovation here. So I think VCs who don't invest in here are frankly going to miss out. And, you know, that really touched on just an overall trend of public entities and like governments depending on private entities and more startups to kind of solve issues that might become controversial in the courts or like are politically polarizing. It's like going to a startup is a way to go around a lot of the red tape that can come with, you know, dealing with the government to fix something. Because that's also happening a lot in DEI overall here in the U.S. This might be controversial in the court system and like for legal reasons, but New York City just announced that 60 VC firms were coming together to form an alliance to back diversity. So that's kind of a way, like putting it into the the private markets is kind of a way to circumvent the messiness of, of being in public. But I'm also, when I hear stuff like that, I'm also wondering, like, how far can they go without the help of the government, like right. any government? No, it is true. And with that being said, it's also some of the areas that they're focused on now, follows a typical path, I feel, for climate startups in a lot of sense of focusing on Europe, focusing on the U.S. And even though there's full acknowledgement that there are other regions in the world who may need this tech a little bit more so, but who knows? I mean, the government funding, private backing, that could all play a role in where these companies end up targeting first. Because if the government of the country that needs it the most isn't going to help you or isn't going to fund you, that doesn't matter if your solution's going to help in many ways, like it won't be used. Yeah, I know that's another thing I have with like climate technology that is coming out. It's like brilliant stuff, but the countries and the communities that need it the most are not getting access to that technology. So like what good is it if the Western world and the U.S. and Europe is able to perfectly, you know, prepare for floods, but then you have these issues in South Asia, you have like what happens there, you know? The issue of the climate crisis kind of has to be tackled by the world. It can't just, I don't think there's going to be one winner and one loser. I think we're all going to lose if we all don't win together. But that's just, that's just my opinion. I don't really know. Oh, so beautifully said, though. <laughs> that's all I got. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori-Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Listener.